Um, you know me, I love the Proverbs, and so today's the 11th. I picked verse 9. Through knowledge and superior discernment shall the righteous be delivered. That's our proverb of the day. And um, the last um, couple weeks ago, the last time I was here, I was gone for two weeks, so um, two Sundays, and um, I shared an African proverb. And I want to tell you a little bit about the story behind that. Um, there was a fellow who used to come to the church where I used to pastor. His name was John Garlock, and he always opened his services with uh, his messages with a, an African proverb. Now, African proverbs are not the word of God, but they're pretty cool. And there's some stuff hidden in them sometimes. And one day, John Garlock was there, and I said, John Garlock, I want your list of... Af- put, hide that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, said, I, I said, I want your list of African proverbs. He said, well, I can't give them to you. He says, yes, you can. And finally, I got them from him. Um, John Garlock was a good Bible teacher. He, uh, he was a professor at, at Christ for the Nations, and he's gone to be with the Lord now um, almost 15 years ago. And his, his parents were... Um, missionaries to Liberia in the 20s. And John Garlock's wife, Ruth Ann, um, wrote this book about his parents um, and his, his, their, their role as missionaries to Liberia. And the name of the book is Before We Kill and Eat You. These were cannibals. <laughs> anyway, that was the guy. Um, so now we can go to the African proverb of the day. Those who are absent are always wrong. <laughs> okay, there's something about what... <laughs> I, <laughs> come on, that's funny. <laughs> it's truer than you want to admit, isn't it? Okay, so um, I, I think everybody likes it when the guy up front shares things and they're clear. Last thing I want is for people to go home from Sunday service going, hey, what was he talking about? What was that all about? It's like, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, that's not going to happen here today. I don't like it when that kind of thing happens. I don't know how much it does. but um, so, so I'm going to start out and give you today's message in a sentence. But you don't get to leave yet, okay? Because I want to actually expand this. But the message in a sentence, here it comes. For life change to happen, we must commit to full cooperation with God's desire to transform us. So I started a series um, the last time we met, and the series is what we're going to be doing over the next couple of months, actually. We're going to be making our hearts available to the change that the Lord wants to do right in here, right in our hearts, making ourselves available. And um, I think, uh, you know, that statement, um, you can, okay, too fast. Um, Sorry, I'm not criticizing. I'm grateful for what you do, Rafa. You do a great job. Everybody thank the person running the (laughs) opportunity. I didn't make, that did not make up for drawing attention to you, did it? Didn't work at all. Okay, so anyway, that, that statement has a lot of pretty extreme words, you know, must, commit, full cooperation, you know, and um, I, think, I think if there was a spectrum, if we could measure a spectrum, you know, I think people, in terms of their teachability, a lot of people are really, really humble and um, you know, they, they're, they're gracious and they're very teachable. And then others, other people listen more critically. I don't mean in a bad way, but I mean, it's like, okay, I'm not too sure and I kind of want to know that. That's the tend to the spectrum. That, that's, that's where I tend to be on the spectrum. A little bit more, okay, okay, I got to check this out. And um, I, I think the Bereans had this balanced properly, and there's a scripture. And I'm going to suggest this to you. I'm going to thank you for how teachable you are, but I also want to suggest to you that you ought never to take the word of anybody who stands in front of you. Okay? You ought to do what the Bereans did. And we find this in Acts 17, 11. It said, They received the word with all readiness, 
They were open to the teaching of the word and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And I encourage you and invite you to check me out every time. And I hope you're doing it. Not because I'm not trustable, but I want you in the habit of checking out things that you are taught because you are being fed all kinds of messages all day long from all kinds of different sources. And it's a skill set you need to be able to discern what's trash and what's truth. Okay, fair enough. So the Bereans were pretty smart, Acts 17, 11. So when I, when I prepare a message, you know, and I, this has just been me because my temperament is a little bit critical, not criticism, but I want to know, okay, how does that work? Why does it work? Is it true? And so um, commit, must, full, those are these statements. So I'm going to put my full life in Christ's hands, you know, you know give him everything. Is he going to drive my car too or what? I mean, it's like, you know, yeah. Because here's my goal today. My goal today is to get everybody on board. <laughs> everybody. Not just the people in this room, but the people who will hear this message, either on the internet or, or wherever that happens to. You know, I, I don't understand this, but, you know, our services, we record them and we put them on our web and we don't advertise it or anything. And um, uh, it's free. People can download it, listen to it. And not very many people do. But there are a handful 30, 40, 50 people a week, maybe, from around the world. It's weird. There's a little town in Russia that somebody listens to our messages every week. Russia. <laughs> Somewhere in Israel, South America, Africa. There's a few places. And I believe that the Holy Spirit will, will get other people on board with us. So this is not just for us. But I want to remind you um, where we were the last time. Because we started this, if we're going to make our hearts available for the Lord to shape, we started this message talking about, we've got to get rid of trash, we got to get rid of some of the ways to get changed that just don't work. And we talked last time about faulty methods for change that you see that the world, and we, we talked about them. And so here's a quick review. I'm not going to spend much time on this. This message is available. It's on the website. You can ask for a CD. We'll give it to you. It's free. Um, so if you weren't here and you want to catch up on this, you can get it. So, okay. So here are some faulty methods. One, environment. We, we get changed by our environment. You, you are not, I'm going to tell you right now, you are not Pavlov's dogs. Okay? Um, environment does matter, but it doesn't determine who you are. Second thing, another, another faulty method for change is to dig up your past. You're not a victim. And we spent some time on that before. Uh, we talked about facing it, forgiving it, forgetting it, doing it in that order. I'm, I'm not going to unpack that, but we spent time on that last time. Another faulty method is self-discovery. Very, very popular. It's, it's called humanistic psychology today. There's a document called the DSM, and it's the Bible for psychology. And I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's got problems. It's got some real problems, but it's the way, world's way of, of thinking. In fact, there are so many self-help books. There are hundreds of thousands of them available on Amazon today. Self-help books on all kinds of different subjects. And um, you know, what's needed is not more self-esteem. What's needed is more Christ esteem, okay? So, and then another, another way that the world wants you to change is, number four, would be legalistic change. You know, here's the thing. Christianity is not a set of rules. It's not a big old list of rules. It's not. Number five, ascetic change, which is this big fancy word, you know, I could have said monastic change, but that's another big fancy word. The point is that, that you know, living a life of seclusion and holiness doesn't work either. 
In fact, Paul said, you know, you know the scriptures probably. Paul said, you know, things I ought to do, I don't do them. Things I should not do, I end up doing those. The point is that scripture teaches that you're not capable of living a Christian life. Doesn't mean you ought not to try, okay? Right? But but that's not another way. You cannot, you you just can't. And then the last way that we talked about is uh, intellectual change. You know, it just doesn't work either. We concluded that if we're going to change, it's got to be biblical change. And um, so that's where we're headed over the course of the summer. So as we go forward in this series about how to be changed by God, this critical guy, you know, considers, okay, I'm going to let God change me. Does God have a good resume for change? Is he good at this? Because if he desires, you know, my full cooperation, I want to know. Okay. Are you any good at this, God? <laughs> I don't, we would assume he is, but let's find out. I think we should do that. So, I mean, I, I own a few woodworking tools at home. Some of you who have done woodworking projects with me before know that I own them. But it doesn't mean that I'm very good at them. I took an eighth grade shop class. That's my extent. I have a friend who helped me build something once or twice, kind of. He mostly built it, and I didn't. I mean, I remember in eighth grade, I built my dad. I made for my dad in my eighth grade wood shop a wine rack out of black walnut. Talk about butchering some beautiful wood. (laughs) And I think that thing through, I can still picture it in my mind. I worked hard on that thing, but it was terribly ugly. And, and, and as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking, I don't remember ever seeing that thing on the counter at home. <laughs> what happened to that thing, Mom? You never saw it. I gave that to my dad. Okay. So, man. I'm, I'm just not, it's just not, I'm not good at woodworking. Okay? I mean, I know which end of the hammer you grab. I'm really proud. I had to resurface a bunch of my deck at home, and for the first time, I ordered the correct amount of wood. I didn't cut some boards too short and have to throw them away. But normally, I buy double the amount of wood because of the number of mistakes. I know the rule. Measure twice, cut once. It doesn't apply to me. I mean, <laughs> it ought to. And, and I, you know, sometimes I look at the stuff I make, and I go, oh, it just doesn't look right. How often... Do you think God does that? You know, God looks at something and goes, oops. <laughs> you know, I mean, you might think he does, but the answer is I heard it. Never. God never does that. And God has millions upon millions and upon millions of satisfied customers when it comes to change. Millions of us. And if we were going to uh, interview God and see, you know, are we going to select you, hire you for this job? I think we would want to look at his resume. So, of course, his resume is, we're going to get into the Word of God in just a minute, but I, I think we got to look at God's resume. If it's worth letting him change us, let's look at his resume. So, I want to look at a few examples of God changing some people. Um, and I picked a few um, ones that I like. Acts chapter 7, um, we're going to jump around a little bit. Acts chapter 7, the context here is this guy named Stephen, and he's preaching about a character from the Old Testament whose name is Moses. You probably know Moses. Now, Moses was kind of a strange guy in a lot of ways. His, um, you know, at a very early age, his mother gave him away, and um, there's a whole wonderful story there about the miracle of Moses. His mother gives him away, and uh, he ends up getting collected by a princess. And um, through the intervention of God, um, he's been sentenced to death by the king, uh, but the king doesn't know who he is. And the 
the, the, the princess saves him and then pays Moses' mother to nurse him. It's pretty, quite, quite a miracle. That's a rabbit trail. I don't want to go down there. But anyway, he's kind of an odd guy. His mother gave him away. He ends up getting raised by the king, raised by the, 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 uh, the king's daughter, and he's raised in the palace. So by the time he gets you know, of age, he thinks he's kind of something, right? He's been raised. Yeah, I'm Moses, the guy from the palace, right? Can you, you can kind of think about that. He's raised in luxury. And so God, um, you know, when God calls him and tells him the same thing that he tells every one of his children, hey, I've got plans for your life. I've got plans for your life, and I've got things I'm going to ask you to do. They're for your good, and they're for my plans, for my kingdom. This, when, he, when God says this to Moses, you know, he, um, he, he, he says, basically says, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt into the promised land. He gets a little bit of attitude. Okay, so we pick this up in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart, this is Stephen talking about Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. Actually, we know it was God that put this into Moses' heart, right? Okay, that's like God put things into our hearts this morning. To, to, to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. So he's going to get out of Dodge and he's going to go get out of the palace and see how the real world lives. Verse 24, and seeing one of them, one of his Hebrew brothers, um, being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Everybody say murder. Murder. He, he murdered the guy. 23, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving, giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. They didn't get that. So now Moses... He's a murderer, and he's kind of like, ooh, what did I just do? I just killed this guy. So he's like, uh-oh. So he buries the guy in the sand, and he runs into somebody and says, hey, aren't you the one who murdered that you know, guy? And so now he's freaking, and he's thinking, I'm in trouble. I, I'm, I, am, I am real real trouble. So he runs. Moses takes off. He's a murderer. Instead of facing up to what he, you know, responsibility for what he did, he, he, he heads off and he spends, Scripture tells us that he spends the next 40 years in the desert, okay? So far, Moses' life story. Okay, so he's 40 years old when he, when he goes. He's a short season as a murderer and now 40 years in the desert, okay? You with me? So you don't have to be a math major. How old's Moses about? 80. 80. Okay, so he's about 80 years old. And... Um, he comes back and God says to him, basically, he says, God says to Moses, I choose you. And Moses says, um, wait, 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 wait. Well, hold on a minute. I, I, I don't talk very well. You can read about that in Exodus 4.10. I'm not making fun of, of the stuttering. There's, a, there's some dis, disconnect um, by scholars. Did he stutter or was it a different issue? I don't know. A couple of possibilities. It could be he actually stuttered. And God's saying, you're going to be my leader. And he's thinking, I'm going to get in front of people. I, 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 I don't. It could be that he stuttered. Another thing was, he was raised for 40 years in the palace, although he probably spent a few years being nursed by his mother and learning Hebrew. For the next 40 years, he's in the palace, probably speaking Egyptian. Then he has a short stint again, murders, heads off into the desert. He is not around the Hebrew language for most of those 80 years. 
So God says, you're going to lead the Hebrew nation. You're going to lead my people out. Maybe it wasn't that he stuttered. Maybe he just didn't speak Hebrew very well. And he thought, how am I going to do this? But whatever it was, he's got a boatload of excuses. And there's this thing, you know, God says, well, I, I don't talk very well. God says, I'm going to use you anyway. I'm paraphrasing here. But, but, but you know, can't you find some? I'm using you. But I don't want to do I'm Get used to it. <laughs> this is the plan. And at, you know, at, at 80 years old, I know none of you would know what this is like, maybe a couple. But usually by the time we get to 80, we've kind of learned how to chill, right? Get along with God. If you, especially if you've walked with the Lord for a long time, you've realized, you know, it's not so smart to tell God no. It doesn't work out. But we try it. In fact, most of us do it, yours truly included. Most of us do it for most of our life. God says, hey, Terry, I'm, I want you to do something. He said, Lord, there are way better qualified. No, I don't want... Terry? Terry! We're doing it! <laughs> you know, I think... Um, this might be piling on. I don't mean to pile on. It just seems like the appropriate time. It's like um, this thing about the children's department. You know, <laughs> some of you, you know, this is really true. Some of you, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm not that good with kids. Come on. Sometimes they just need your smile, you know. And this isn't about you being an experienced teacher. Some, sometimes the Holy Spirit is saying, I need you to do something. I will equip you. In fact, I'm not calling you to be the third baseman on the New York Yankees because you're the best third baseman on the... I'm calling you because you're not so good. Because I'm going to show myself in your not-so-goodness. I'm going to show you what I can do through you. And you don't believe in yourself. And it's with little kids. They're scary. (laughs) They make messes. Lisa and I um, started our ministry. Excuse me, I'm shouting too much. I'm losing my voice should be calmer. When we first got saved, she said, come on, we're going to go work in the Sunday school, and this is a bigger church, three-year-olds. And I swear there was one little boy who was handicapped. Dude, he swore, every Sunday at the exact same, you could set your watch, he would throw up on the floor. This is my job of recruiting you to our children's ministries. (laughs) Anyway, but I learned something at that time that it wasn't my strengths that God was going to use. He'll use your strengths. He's shaped you for specific reasons in his kingdom. But more often than not, he's going to use the areas that you don't see as strengths. And it's going to be profound what he does. Anyway, here's Moses. At 80, he's still stubborn. He's still fighting with God. <laughs> and God kind of takes a hold of him and says, come on, we're doing this together. And Moses is reluctant. And then God does some awesome things that you read about and you see in the movies. You know, it's like he parts the Red Sea. He, he, you know, he, he does these plagues and they were pretty powerful and that kind of stuff, you know, cool stuff in the movies at least. Probably not so cool if you're on the receiving end of those things. And, and he, he takes this whole nation to the promised land. He does these miracles feeding. It was just crazy. And so if you want to look at God's resume for change, Moses' life says that no matter how long you've struggled... It's not too late to change. That's Moses. Some of you here are thinking, man, I, I wish I would have known this maybe when I was in my 20s, or you know, I wish somebody would have got my attention, grabbed me by the shoulders, and said, you know, I, I, because I could have done something different with my life. I could have made some better choices. 
And maybe you're standing over so much spilled milk and maybe your plans have gone south or you, know, you, you have some regrets about some choices that you made and how things could have been. But Moses' life shouts this out. It's never too late to change. It's not. It's, not, it's never too late. It's never too late. And some of you, I think, came to church today so the Holy Spirit could say those words into your soul. That it's never too late to change. And you need to stop putting the wall up and let the Holy Spirit get that word down into your soul that it's not too late to change. You know, maybe you're in your 40s or your 50s and your marriage isn't what you thought it should be or um, your career didn't become what you'd planned for it to be and you're starting to, you know, maybe adopt an attitude that says, well, I I guess this is my deal. I'm going to float along. I'm going to cruise through life. Now, maybe the Lord's going to do something profound through my children. You know, maybe I'm stuck. Listen, it's not too late. It's just not too late for you. I think the odds are pretty good that there are not very many murderers in this room today. (laughs) And it wasn't too late for Moses. It's not too late for you. That's Moses. Okay, here's another one. Go back to the resume. This one's in John chapter four. It's one of my favorite stories. And this is the story of the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman. And um, um, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna give you the context and we'll, we'll dip into that passage in just a minute. So he, he shows up to this woman at a well. She's a Samaritan woman. And Jesus, you know, he shouldn't have been talking to her um, because of her, you know, because she's, she's a woman and that was gender prejudice, but Jesus didn't buy into that. He shouldn't have been talking to her because she was a Samaritan. He, he shouldn't have been talking to her because of racial prejudice. Jesus didn't buy into that. He cuts through all of that, and um, you know they have this conversation that's pretty interesting, and he asks her for some water, and she's surprised that he's talking to her at all, and, he, and they get into this conversation about living water. If I give you living, I'll give you living water, you'll never thirst, and it's a pretty miraculous conversation. And then he asks this really penetrating question. Go call your husband to come here. <laughs> and she's got a story. And she doesn't really want to discuss it with this absolute. She doesn't want him to know about what's going on in her life. But catch this. Jesus doesn't seek your confession of the truth so that he can condemn you. That's not why he's asking you to tell the truth. Some of, some of the people here today, some of you, some, some of us today, we've, we've got some secrets. And one thing I, I just want you to know about the people who lead here, especially the people who stand in this place, we don't want to ever, ever come across like we're condemning you. We love you. And we, we want you to know that. God loves you. There is not condemnation. And when Jesus would meet with people, he loved the people that he was talking to. But he still wants the truth to come out so that he can help them. And that's the reason. So he says to this lady, go call your husband. She's embarrassed. Um, uh, How am I going to answer this guy? You can see this in John 4, starting in verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one, the the guy you're with now that you're shacking up with, he's not your husband either. And she's like, oh, shame. 
right? We can feel her shame. You know, she's thinking, I- I've made a lot of mistakes and I've been with these different men and, you know, I'm ashamed. I, I don't want anybody to know about this. This guy has read my mail. I don't know what to do. I know when you read this, what you think he was saying, you think he was saying, you wicked woman, you've had the, the you're just wicked. But, but it wasn't like that. Jesus isn't like that. Turn to your neighbor and say, he isn't like that. He isn't like that. Say it. He wasn't like that. Jesus is, is, is saying to this woman, honey, I, I can't, help you if you can't be honest with yourself. I, I can't help you. you. You can't have a better future if you can't admit to yourself that you've made some mistakes, if you've done some things, if you've had some bad choices. And listen, church, don't be afraid of the word sin. You know, I think everybody in here has felt or feeling right now the effect of the sin in our lives. We, we, it, we, you know, we're all sinners. Turn to your neighbor and say, I am. Thank you for not saying Terry is. <laughs> Terry is. <laughs> we're all sinners. Every one of us has broken God's law. And, and scripture says that we all fall in lots of different ways. You are not sitting in a room full of perfect people. You're not. But you are sitting in a room full of many, many, many <clears throat> forgiven people. Sweetie, do you have a loss? I'll say it on the tape. I love you, sweetie. Okay. <clears throat> so forgive me for the fact that I have a lozenge in my mouth and you hear me slopping around up here. I don't mean to be gross. But <clears throat> my voice is kind of getting thin. So <clears throat> I think every one of us has, has at some point fallen and this room is full of forgiven people. Forgiven people. And if you've been coming here for days, this is your first time, or you've been here for a couple of weeks or months or decades, and you've been keeping a secret for that time, I want you to know this morning that I proclaim to you a Jesus Christ, a Savior named Jesus Christ, who loves you right where you are. Right where you are. And that Savior will wash your life clean. He'll take away all of your guilt, all of your heaviness, all of the regret for the things that you've done that weigh you down, and he will put you on a new page and take you forward in his grace. That's how he does it. That's the God that we love and serve. And he's got an awesome, awesome resume on change. He dealt so lovingly with this woman her life has changed forever. So Moses' life says, no matter how long you struggle, the woman at the well says, no matter how much shame you feel, it's never too late to change. No matter how much shame you feel. Okay, here's another one. This guy's one of my favorites. His name is Paul. And uh, this is the story of the conversion of, um, you know, the salvation of the greatest enemy the church has ever known. 
pretty bold. That's my opinion. I think he's probably, his name was Saul at the time, and God changed it later to Paul. And you can see a story in several places, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, chapter 26. They all talk about his, his, his salvation. I'm going to go into Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 9. This is Paul talking. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This is who he is. I was convinced that I ought to do many things opposing the name of Jesus. And he says, verse 10, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. This guy is a paid assassin of the government. He has the permission. He just threw the government under the bus here. Kind of like watching the news today. Anyway, that shouldn't go there. He's, he's locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put, and, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I personally cast my vote to put them to death. He stood there. Should we kill this Christian? Yes. Should we kill this Christian? Yes. He's casting votes. This is, this is who this guy is. Verse 11, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. I took a hold of people and I said, curse Jesus Christ. Curse him right now or we're going to beat you. That's who this guy is. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And this is all so wrong. It's just so unjust, the stuff he's doing. And I know a lot of crazy things go on in life. I get that. And I know some of you are thinking right now of some of the things that you've done. You know, some awful things. Some things that you're ashamed of. I got things in my life I'm ashamed of. I doubt there are very many people in this room that have done what Paul did. You know, making people blaspheme, casting votes to put people to death. When Stephen was being stoned, Scripture tells us that, that Saul was standing there holding the coats of the people doing the stoning. It's like he said, here, hey, hey, let me hold your coat for you. Your arm will be more flexible and you'll be more accurate. Maybe you'll hit him harder. Let me hold your coat for you so you can do a better job of stoning this guy. Man, no way does God love that, that guy. No way does God want that guy and his family. If you believe that, you could not be further from the truth. Paul's life says, no matter how awful your sin, it's never too late to change. No matter how long you've struggled, no matter how much shame you feel, no matter how awful your sin, it's never too late to change. Notice here he's talking, he's talking in the text. He's on his way to Damascus to find more Christians to persecute. Then in verse 13, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Okay, he cannot even look towards it. It's so bright. It's blinding, literally. That shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I wonder if the light knocked them down or if they just dropped. I don't know. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, that, doesn't, that phrase doesn't mean a lot to you and to me, but in their culture, it meant a lot. They would, you know, the goads was something they would use, and it was, um, 
they had oxen, and the oxen would have a, a, well, first off, the oxen had a lot of strength. And they would pull a plow, and they would do different things that human strength could not do. And oxen could go where they would want to go. And if you want them to plow that way, you had to make them plow that way, because otherwise they would go wherever they would want to go. They're kind of like people, right? And a goad was, there was two different things that were considered goads. One was a long spear-like thing, and it had a hook on the end. I think we have pictures. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the, the, the oxen would come along, and if the, if, if the oxen started to turn, they would just kind of tap it on the shoulder with that point, or jab it. And the oxen would go, oh, that's not good, I'll keep doing this instead, <laughs> right? Another, another form of goad was this kind of the circle of points that would be kind of fixed. And if it tried to turn, they didn't have to whack it because the, the mechanism would do it. And it would make the, go, the, the, the ox go where the master wanted it to go. Wouldn't let it swerve left or right. And this is kind of, this, what, what this, is, this is saying is that even with the wickedness that Saul had, had done, God had surrounded him in such a way that he couldn't move. God was coming after Saul. God, not in a bad way, but God was pursuing. He had a plan, and he was putting him in a narrower and a narrower and a narrower pathway to prevent him from being able to wander off course. Saul couldn't move the wrong direction without feeling something when he did. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, and I realize this is tender and sacred ground, really, I'm on. Some of you might be there right now. Maybe, maybe you can't sleep because of some sort of guilt you carry. Or maybe, maybe you can't act normally in relationships because of how you have acted before. And it weighs on you, and you carry it with you, and you try to kick against the goads, and it doesn't work. You just can't get it off of it. You know, the more you sin, it doesn't get better. The more you try to act righteously, it doesn't get better. Because you can't get it off you. And here's the thing. God's plan for you isn't that you would commit yourself to self-improvement. That's not God's plan. Because you can't, by yourself, change yourself. You can't. (laughs) I've tried it. God's resume for change is pretty awesome. Moses, you know, no matter how long you've struggled, the woman at the well, no matter how often you have fallen or, or how much shame you feel in Paul's life, how awful your sin, it's never too late to change. And, of course, there are a lot of other examples. It's really awesome what God can do in a person's life. And it's easy to talk about all this change, you know, that was going on back in the days of the Bible a long time ago. But I want you to know this. God is also changing people today. He is. He's changing people in today in America. He's changing people today in the state of Washington. He's changing people today in the community of Rochester. He's changing people today in this room. He's changing people today that are hearing these words in our church. And I love to watch the Lord change lives. I, I love to see, because I know the fruit and the good things, sometimes the process of change isn't so fun to watch. Because many times there's a lot of pain involved. And, um, you know, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's got this great resume and change. And so I just want you to know right now, over the next couple of months, we're going to be on this topic, and we're going to be talking about the process of change, how God does this, so that we can understand what he's doing. And, and here, I want to say this right now at the beginning, and here's our point today. 
The process for change with God begins with salvation. Salvation. And there are a lot of biblical terms for salvation. Um, you know, many of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you may not. I'm going to take the time to explain this. Um, so stay with me. Even if this is old news to you, it's good for you to hear this so that you can do this with somebody else. Um, but others need to hear this. So salvation, you know, another, other, other Bible terms for it. Another one is being born again. The idea is there is that we've been born dead spiritually, um, saved, which is kind of like the idea of a person who's drowning. You know, you save them from drowning or justified. So that's someone who's been condemned and um, then set free, redeemed, like a debt's been canceled, uh, my sin's been paid for. Or, or another example, um, the scripture talks about a dead man raised to life. Lots of examples about how important it is. And so I'm going to share the gospel in the next couple of minutes and the good news. And I, I'm just going to ask that every true follower of Jesus Christ, you be praying during this time, okay, in these next few minutes. Don't stop until I'm done with this. Okay, if you already know the Lord, because I think people who hear this right now or later um, are going to come to know Jesus, and their lives are going to be changed forever. Okay, so here's what the gospel is. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Power of God for salvation. So I'm going to take a minute and talk about the gospel. If you, if you want to be changed by God, if you're praying, Lord, change me, you have to get into a partnership with God. And partnership with God call, begins with something we're going to call salvation. It's, that's where it has to start. So to help you understand this, um, I'm going to give you this, um, I'm going to describe to, to, to three doors. Okay, I'm going to use three doors to describe this. And on one side of the door is God, and on the other side of the door is you. Okay? First door, we're going to call that one the blank door, or maybe the dead door. Okay? This is a person who, who um, doesn't know that there's a door, doesn't know that there's a God. They just don't know. They're just clueless. They are dead to God. They're just, it's a non-topic, a non-issue to them. Lisa and I have um, windows on the backside of our house and patio doors that are, she keeps them so clean that you can't tell that there's glass there. She's a good job with that. And unfortunately for some of the birds in the neighborhood, it looks inviting on the inside of the glass. And so every so often, I'll go out on the back deck, and there will be a beautiful little bird that my wife murdered. <laughs> Honey, don't you think that's funny? It's a little bit funny. <laughs> no, there'll be a little bird there that was flying full boat for that dark, safe place inside there and never even knew what hit it. And it's dead. It didn't know there was a door. It's kind of sad. You know, and I think um, the Bible says that we're born into the world like that. We're dead to God. You can read about that lots of places, Psalm 50. There's lots of places that explain the truth that we are born into the world dead to God. We're, we're born in with a sin nature. And um, a lot of people are behind that blank door. You know, there's a God. I need God? Really? Is that true? There are a lot of people that are there. Jesus, Jesus taught on this. He said, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. You find that in John 6. He also said, you've not chosen me, but I chose you in John chapter 15. So the first thing that happens in anyone's heart who is dead to God is God makes the first move. God makes the first move. And I have the faith to believe 
and I, I've been believing this as I've been working on this message, that the Lord is making the first move in some lives right now. Right now. God's maybe, maybe he's making a move towards you and then maybe there was a time in your life when you know, you've been dead to God. You know, I don't care, I'm not interested, it's just not a topic to me and you know, I, I thought I had it all together, I didn't know I needed anything. But then God began to stir something in my heart. Has that been happening to you maybe? Is that been happening, something stirring in your heart? Because once you get past the blank door, you find out that there's another door there, and we're going to call that door the barrier door. There's a barrier door there. Even when, you, when your heart starts to become awakened to the, to the need you have, that the God loves you, that you start to become alive to God, and that happens because of God's grace. Even when that happens, you become aware that there's a barrier, and that barrier has a name, and the barrier's name is sin. My sin. My sin has a barrier. Isaiah 59 says that your sins have created this separation between you and God. Sin's a problem. God is holy, and um, there's not going to be any sin with the holy God in heaven. Sin's a blockage. It's a barrier. And God's on one side of the door, and you're on the other side of the door, and if something, if it stays that way, nothing's going to change. So God himself looked at that and said, you know what, we have a barrier problem, and this is a problem that we couldn't solve on our own. Here's the deal. You can't be good enough to erase the barrier. You can't. You can't be faithful enough. You can't go to church enough. You can't help enough little old ladies across the street enough. You cannot erase the barrier. Goodness does not erase the sin problem. It just doesn't. Only God can do that. So beyond the blank door and beyond the barrier door is the last door, and we're going to call that the blood door. The blood door is described by that verse I mentioned before, and we're just about done here. Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You realize it wasn't like he thought, oh, finally, Terry, you've come around. I'll go ahead and die for you. No. He chose to die for me when I was at my worst. He needs me so bad. That's God. And that's the good news. The good news is that you do not have to go to hell to pay for your sin. That's good news. Right? You don't have to bear the guilt of your sin every day of your life because God loves you. Jesus died for you. He paid, he decided to pay the penalty for your sin. He he took this, this just condemnation from a holy God and took it on himself. He says, I got that. Christ died for the unrighteousness, um, for the unrighteous, for for us, for all all of us, for me and for you. And you have to personalize that. That's what it means to be saved. You have to personalize that. Revelation 3, verse 20 says this. Jesus says, these are Jesus' words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. And, um, I mean, I stuck this very famous painting from a guy named Warner Salmon. You, he's probably the most prolific painter of the, 19th, or the 20th century. If you have a picture of, you know, the famous pictures of white Jesus... <laughs> whoever white Jesus is, this guy painted him. But he stands at that door, and this is a great picture. Him standing at the door of a heart and knocking. 
How long has they been knocking at your door? Wanting to come in. Here's the deal. The next move is yours. God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That was God's move. The next move is yours. To receive salvation, you have to open the door. Opening the door is where you admit to God that, okay, I came into this world a sinner. I, I, I cannot fix this myself. I, I have no way. I can't be good enough. I can't fix enough problems. I, I, I can't stop my imperfection. I, I can't do this without you, God. It's just admitting that. And you can toss into the admissions, you know what? By the way, God, when I do try to fix things myself, I kind of make a mess of it. And I'm tired of that. I'd really like to get on board with your plan. Opening the door means basically two things. You turn from your sin and you embrace the king of forgiveness. You, 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 you get off the illusion that I can be good enough to get to heaven. And you get on to the truth that he died to pay the price for your sins because you couldn't get there any other way. I don't deserve to be forgiven. But I know that Jesus Christ died to save me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. I want to ask everybody to pray. Bow, bow your heads. You know, this is not the time to pack up and leave. This is kind of a sacred moment. Every true believer should be praying with everything that's in them right now for the Spirit to have His way in the hearts of people who need this news. In part because the Bible says that the God of this age, that's speaking of the enemy of our souls, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Lord, let the gospel shine into hearts right now. Let the truth, Lord, somehow get past the barriers that have grown over the years into a tender place of open hearts. Reach in right now, Lord. Reach down and and take veils off of people's eyes right now. Lord, I pray that those who have heard your voice today and realized that you are knocking at the door are now choosing to open the door to you. Eyes are closed. If you would make that decision, that eternal decision to open the door to Christ, to to open the door to the one who loves you, the only one who can really change you and shape you and direct you and guide you to life and to hope. If you would make that decision today, I would just ask you while eyes are closed just to look up and make eye contact with me. I just want to pray with you and I'm not going to embarrass you, I promise. And if I don't, could you give me your hand? Just wave your hand at me. God bless you. God bless you. The others? That's so good. Thank you, Lord, for hearts that are tender before you. Eternity has changed. I'm so grateful. Lord, we admit that we fall short of your glory, but that you love the world so much that you sent your son to pay the price for us. We open our hearts to salvation. We open our heart to the place where we would say, God, have your way in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with this church and with all those who have...